This is the Monday, February 27, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine makes a fast break for the end of Black History Month. On a basketball court, just off the coast of Massachusetts, our guest is award-winning cultural critic and sports writer Bijan C. Bain. You've seen his work in the New York Times, Washington Post, and maybe you've even picked up his best-selling book, Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. Today, Bijan is here to discuss his latest title, Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. You can find our guest on Twitter at Bijan C. Bain, that's B-I-J-A-N, the letter C, B-A-Y-N-E. And you can check out his WordPress blog, which we'll link to at historyauthor.com. Now you may be asking yourself, Martha's Vineyard? That island off Cape Cod, Massachusetts, may not conjure up the sound of a basketball thunking on asphalt or sneakers squeaking on hardwood, much less the civil rights movement. But Bijan describes the history happening right under the converse of players from many backgrounds and colors, perched on all rungs up and down the social ladder. Over the decades, names as seemingly unconnected as Charles Lindbergh, James Cagney, Frank Sinatra, James Taylor, Jaleel White, who 90s kids know better as Steve Urkel from Family Matters, and President Barack Obama, have all taken their shots on the courts. It's a one-of-a-kind place with a lot of history behind it. And, as with all the best history, there's some inspiration for how we can live better lives today. Okay, now that we've taken our seats courtside, let's join Bijan C. Bain and take in a little Martha's Vineyard Basketball. I'm joined on the line by Bijan C. Bain, author of Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Dean, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. This made me flash back to my own childhood in the 70s so many times. I looked at one picture in the book, Sean Schofield, and I saw his socks. You know, everyone had those socks with the, the three stripes on the top. <laughs> and I said, I, I think I had those exact socks. I had those sneakers. I, <laughs> I felt like I knew these people in the book, and I felt like mm-hmm. it was making me realize how much just a little pickup game, something like that, a socializing as a child, as a young person teaches you about life. And that's what Martha's Vineyard basketball is really all about. It's about, you know, making young people into men and women, because you have girls in this league too. Mm-hmm. There's so much history happening right there. This game of basketball traces its origins to Massachusetts in 1891. You cover that origin story in Martha's Vineyard basketball. Give us a timeline from that first pair of peach baskets that are used as nets to the moment the courts at Oak Bluffs open in your day. The gentleman who invented basketball under the supervision of Luther Gulick at the Springfield YMCA was obviously Dr. James Naismith, and he was Canadian. He was supervising fitness and education programs at the Springfield Y, where Gulick presided over some of the Massachusetts YMCAs at the time. And in that day, the YMCA occupied a much bigger space in towns and cities and culture in terms of activities and recreation than it does now, because there were very few analogous outlets for things like recreation, especially for men. And then later you get the YWCA with young young women and girls. So he was tasked 
by Dr. Gulick with coming up with a bridge sport to occupy relatively young men, I would say young adults by today's terms, between really the end of football season and the start of the following baseball season, a winter sport and an indoor sport. But coincidentally or not, six months before he devised and came up with what he thought would be a good concept game to experiment with, with having men play indoors, he visited Martha's Vineyard for the first summer camp in United States history, which was called the Martha's Vineyard Summer Institute. Hmm. And there he took classes or courses or seminars, they would be if you were only there for a couple of weeks, workshops in things like gymnastics and movement and things of that nature. And it's six months later in December that he develops this sport with the two peach baskets on each end of this indoor track with the indoor track was raised above a gymnasium floor. It just happened that the track in the Springfield YMCA was 10 feet above the floor. So that's where he tried to get the custodian to affix a goal on each end for the men to shoot a ball through. He thought a a logically sized ball would be about the size of a soccer ball. So it'd be easy to catch and see indoors and indoor light because, you know, this dawn of electricity, barely. Hmm. And they put the baskets at that height just because that's where the running track was at that gym. So that was where the platform was. And that only happened six months after he uh, spent that summer at the Martha's Vineyard Summer Institute. When I found out that there was organized basketball being played there, was probably the summer I was 11, which would be 1970. I'm not sure if I first went down to the courts on my bike and noticed that there were kids my age playing in the morning and after a morning instruction in summer of 70 or summer of 71. But sometimes I want to think it was 71. So that was only about 80 years after the sport was invented. But it was also not geographically too far from where the sport was first conceived. They say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I think that Martha's Vineyard basketball, for me, was a great way to judge it because I flash back to my own childhood in the 70s. I remember when I moved from one town to the other when I was about 11. You know, they had a league in town. My mom found it somehow. This is 1981, so it's not like she found it on the Internet. But somehow, you know, you can go there and as long as you have sneakers, basically, you can play. And it's a way to really bring yourself into a bunch of people that you don't know. You know, you ask if you can get in a game, you go. And Mm -hmm. I wanted you to describe that picture that made me just have that flashback here in the 70s. Talk about what that means to you when you look at that picture and what people get from that when they pick up the book and they sort of put us in those converse of wandering onto the courts that first summer's day in Martha's Vineyard. Well, when we were out of school, those of us who didn't live on the vineyard year round a lot of us discovered what we call the courts and quotes because we would ride our bikes a lot in the early 70s through the mid 70s and early 80s, the kids that came behind us. And because of that, Oak Bluffs is it's a decent sized town, but it's probably the third largest of the three vineyard towns, Edgartown and uh, Vineyard Haven. But it was decent size and it has a much larger summer population than winter. So you ride down there because your house is not that far away or because you're doing stuff, for you, running an errand for your mom, going to the store, what have you, or because you ride by the tennis courts that are next to the basketball courts. And you see these kids playing in the morning with refs. So it's structured. You see a scoreboard and they're like, oh, that's neat. That's like the NBA. You got a scoreboard and real team names and names scribbled on the back of T-shirts. So you get inquisitive. And it is a way to get to know a lot of summer kids and island kids, because island kids play too, year-round kids, sort of overnight, because they're going to place you on a team if you're, say, 8 to about 10. They're going to place you on a team with kids about your age, 11 to about 13, 13 to about very young high school, and then everyone else that's really, really good plays at night. And because of that, you're meeting kids from all over the eastern seaboard who you might not know, because if you're a summer resident, their house is not that close to your house where you would have run into that kid by nature. Or if they're an island kid, which for the most part is working class, your parents don't know their parents. So it's not like you're going to the beach with that family every day in the afternoon. So you might be from a different social stratum from that person. And if you're a New Yorker, you're from Queens or Manhattan or Brooklyn, from Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Providence, you don't live in Massachusetts all year. So 
you're meeting these kids who are at first little boys or little girls, then later teenagers. And as you get older, you're still playing in that league every summer, making a lot of new friends. And the book is about how many of those people form friendships that are in some ways because they were on a team and they were working toward a common summer goal are closer than the friends that they had in the cities where they lived all year round. And in some instances, the kids who were from the vineyard met city kids or suburban kids from other parts of the U.S. who are still closer friends to them than some of the vineyard kids that they grew up with that went to classes with them uh, every day during the school year. And that's because you are working on what the closest equivalent of for a, a young person is to a job. And when you're doing something where you have a common goal like boot camp or job training or college or study group or something like that, where there's some pressure to achieve, you bond faster than you would bond with probably the kids that you live around all the time. And it's far away. If people are listening maybe today that don't think of it because they have the Internet now growing up and you can see pictures from all over the world to go from somewhere like Newark, New Jersey or Delaware all the way up there to an island off the coast of Massachusetts, off Cape Cod. It's sort of a very isolated place in the mind of a kid. You know, I, I say sometimes that. When we were kids, going to Florida was like going to another country. Now going to another country is kind of like going to Florida. We're much more homogenized. You have your email. You have a lot of the same products and the same TV channels and stuff. But this was really a vacation and almost like another world. You mentioned in Martha's Vineyard Basketball, this relationship going back really until the founding of the island or the renaming of the island. It's a respectful relationship between Bartholomew Gosnold, who names the island after his daughter Martha, and the native Wampanoag. It's literally an island of equality at that time, an oasis of that. I just thought about the 70s at the time on the mainland. Talk about a world away when it's right there. Boston is so divided over school busing that their ABC affiliate box it airing Welcome Back Cotter because they think that it's about school busing because they had Boom Boom Washington there, you know, playing and they had a Jewish Puerto Rican kid and Epstein. And so they didn't want to air right. it. So this is a time of controversy that the book helps us put ourselves in that position where it's a world that maybe today, even if we're kind of our age about you could forget existed and certainly young people don't realize that it's there. And I wanted to ask from that long history going all the way back to relations with the native people, do you think that tradition kind of laid an ethical foundation in some ways for what this place was going to be and what the courts would be someday as you found them in childhood centuries later? Yes, I don't think that people think of it that way. And even as you're asking me the question, it makes me think about why people first came to the vineyard in the first place, which was to practice their faith freely who had come from the mainland, not that they couldn't practice it on mainland Massachusetts or other parts of the country, or in most cases in the, uh, the earliest settlers were obviously from Europe. It was basically settled as a Methodist campground. There were no houses. So it was basically people would ride over on these boats in the 19th century, although it was founded, as you said, by Gosnold a couple centuries prior, but it really didn't get settled in terms of people starting to build homes until the religious meetings. So these were very conservative Methodists and they built this, what looks like a roofed amphitheater, what they call the campgrounds for religious worship and everyone was welcome. Obviously the indigenous people were already there. Now, as people start to gravitate toward there through word of mouth, because as you said, there's very little media other than 17th century, 18th century, 19th century newspapers. It's seen as a welcoming place because it was founded on principles of faith. It's not seen as an exclusive place, even if you didn't come there for the religious meetings. So the ministers settled it, and then the towns slowly grew through the centuries until about the 19th. So the basketball court in some ways mirrored that later because when Jay Schofield, who we'll talk about later, sought, much like Naismith, a recreational outlet, but in his case for summer kids, because in the late 60s, there were so many summer kids hanging out with very little to do. A lot of them didn't have summer jobs. Some of their families were well-to-do, some of them weren't. 
it was a Woodstock era. There were some teenagers just kind of aimlessly coming to Martha's Vineyard because there were a lot of young people their age. There was some smoking going on. There was camping out illegally and things like that. So a lot of island officials met around how do we handle this teen and young adult influx? because we can't police everything. Oh, we can have concerts, we can do some small musical events in the streets. And Jay Schofield proposed having a basketball activity for boys at first, the first couple summers of varying ages, starting around age eight to 10 through high school and signing up a certain amount of kids, dividing them into leagues by ability level and organizing them around team names and things of that nature. So in a way, the basketball court played a similar role that the campgrounds had played about 150 years earlier in terms of being this welcoming place for people of all backgrounds. You make a point in Martha's Vineyard Basketball to say when people arrive, it's very different from what people might think the version is of Black America they got on shows that we grew up watching, Good Time, Sanford and Son, What's Happening, this kind of thing where people are kind of just trying to get by. So how was that experience on the island different from those pop culture representations of a Norman Lear show? Well, the league was founded in 70. I probably saw the first summer, if not the second. And there are a couple major differences. By... 74, 75, when you're starting to see things on television like Welcome Back Carter and Good Times, which are set in the city, although a lot of the kids who signed up to play in the leagues were from the city, the founders, the park director, Mr. McCarthy, the supervisor, and the person who organized and decided which boys had the talent level to be on which team with which other boys, who was the island high school coach, Jay Schofield, and uh, another island high school teacher named Mr. Downs, they worked with kids who happened to be from some of the same cities that are more like the setting of uh, Welcome Back Carter. Kids from places like Brooklyn and Queens, urban Boston, urban Providence, urban DC, Harlem. And they worked with their own kids who they knew a lot better because even though these were grown men and they were, Coach Schofield was on the high school level, He did know the older boys on the vineyard because he coached high school basketball and he taught school. So he knew them from things like tryouts and high school and JV and knew the parents and brothers and sisters. But he wouldn't have known the vacation kids. And the reason it's different than what's depicted on TV is because a lot of the vacationing kids, the black vacation tradition on the vineyard began with servants who in the 19th century would come over from Boston primarily and work parts of the summers as laundresses or hairstylists or chauffeurs or chefs for the family from Boston that owned summer property on the island. The descendants of some of those families would buy the servant's cottage with their savings and they lived in Boston year-round working for those families. Eventually, by the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, some of those people have either built onto those houses and extended them or bought standalone houses of their own, built them, had them brought over from mainland Massachusetts in some cases. So the kids that we were playing with were the descendants of those people. And it eventually became a little bit more of a, uh, a New York presence as well. So these are Boston and New York summer, socially aspirational, no longer working as household help, no longer domestic black kids who are playing summer basketball with island working class, the sons of roofers, mechanics, restaurant owners, postal workers, white kids like Portuguese kids, Italian kids, French Canadian, Massachusetts kids and some Cape Verdean kids who were also born on the vineyard. And that socioeconomic blend is different than what you see on Good Times or Welcome Back Carter, because vacationing kids, for the most part, were from families that were economically better off than the island kids, just by definition, because they were going to their summer homes and the island kids lived there all year round. So when you see something like Welcome Back Carter or The White Shadow or Good Times, 
you think of basketball as an urban game and you think of the white kids who are playing as being the suburban kids or the better to do kids. And you think of the black kids as the city kids and the economically challenged kids and the kids that live in the projects. But that wasn't always the case on the vineyard. Although there are some families in the book that didn't move to the island until the late 60s from places like Washington, D.C., after the urban disturbances following the assassination of Dr. King, or moved from Newark, New Jersey, and another instance where they did live in the inner city and they moved away from the inner city, but they knew about Martha's Vineyard because of their aunts or grandmothers or because their families had visited in the summer. And they decided in 67 or 68 to relocate to Martha's Vineyard permanently, which really surprised the young males in that family because it came out of nowhere. It reminded me of Maynard Jackson, who passed away, but he was the mayor of Atlanta, and they asked him about being young, and his family was college-educated, and he did have some means, and they said, well, they, they let you play on teams with them, on baseball teams, and he said, no, they didn't let me play. They came to me, poor white kids, because I had the bat, I had the ball, I had the gloves, you know, we were. It was, and it's something that I think it's an assumption that people make, and the book turns that on its head and you look at that picture on the cover of the book you mentioned the white shadow and i'd ask you to describe it a little bit for listeners what it means to you because it's something where i think you make assumptions even if you don't think you do when you look at it describe that picture how did you choose it for the cover because you have a bunch of personal pictures inside pictures given to you by people so how does the cover come to being when my publisher roman littlefield asked me to suggest some pictures for the cover design and also suggest some pictures for the interior of the book. I got this picture from Coach Schofield of his two little boys in the early 70s when they were small, standing with two of the summer morning instructors who were vineyard high school basketball stars, but would teach the drills to the little boys in the morning before their league games would start. And I used to see that in 1971 and 72. I'd see these kids playing and they'd do their dribbling through cones, they'd do their passing drills, they'd line up and do their layup lines and things of that nature. They'd one man offensive versus one man defensive full court dribbling against a guy when he's in his defensive stance. And I would always get there kind of later in the summer when the league was already up and running. I'd get there like early August or late July. So I'd see these kids and by the second or third summer, I knew a lot of them because they live right near me in Oak Bluffs. And the cover reflects that you have these two teenagers who are high school boys. The two teenagers are vineyard year-rounders, Johnny Rogers and Rory Maurice, who play for the high school. They're like guards. There's, I think, three little boys in the picture. And the three little boys are summer league basketball players on the first age group level of the league. And what that shows is it shows diversity. It shows that it's outdoors. It shows that it's organized because you can see the little boys all have on the same jersey. And it also shows that Johnny and Ronnie Brown, who is not depicted on the cover, but was also one of the morning counselors and referees and instructors, and Rory Maurice were like these teenage role models, gods in parentheses, to the little boys who would play in the morning because they played at night in, a, in the highest level league. And we would come back to the courts a third time that day to watch them play against, in some instances, grown men. So what you had was you had this league that was like our Facebook. We'd go down in the morning and you'd play, you'd do your morning instructions and your drills. And then the whistles would blow and the scorebook would open up and the electronic scorebook would start and you'd play these regulation games and they'd keep league standings, and they'd post the standings on the fence outside, and the scoring leader averages and the MVPs and things of that nature. So it's really a big deal when you're like 11 and 12 to see your name on this plaque outside this fence every week, the players of the week and things like that. Your your little t-shirt with your little team name scribbled on it. And the counselors were very important because we knew they played for the high school, but we didn't live there, so we never saw them play for the high school. But the vineyard kids did. But we knew they were very good because we saw them play at night with guys from like Brooklyn and the Bronx and Harlem and Boston. And they were holding their own, even though they were only about six or seven years older than we were. And so they were our idols and they got to know our names and we knew them. But, you know, we knew who they were better than they knew who we were because we were so small. So we would play morning organized. Then we'd play in the afternoon when they'd open the courts up for what they call free play. We'd play pickup. 
which means you see kids that you wouldn't even see in the leagues. Like that's when I would play 1.30 to 5 because I didn't get there early enough in the summer to sign up. Then at night around 6.30 after you sort of had an early dinner or something like that at your house, you'd go back and you'd watch guys like Ronnie Brown and Rory Maurice and Johnny Rogers with all these fancy moves and things like that, playing against guys from places like where Welcome Back Carter is set, except in some instances, they're embarrassing these guys that are from these big cities. And you're like, these kids from the vineyard are kind of good. Coach Schofield, Coach Schofield's teams must be really good. I never get to see them because I don't live here, but no wonder he's winning. No wonder he's going to the state tournament every year. So that's why it's a little, it's a lot different than TV because obviously the socioeconomic stereotype is turned on its head but by that same token even though it's turned on its head we idolize the vineyard kids because we're like how do you live here all year round there's all the things that we come here and enjoy in the summer like the beaches are closed because it's winter the movie theater is closed because there's not as much demand in the off season the restaurants the places where we go get saltwater taffy or fudge all that's for us and you're telling us after labor day it closes down what do you do? And they were like, we play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're good, right? <laughs> exactly. There's nothing else to do in the winter. We mentioned Welcome Back Cotter a few times, so I want to give a shout-out to New Utrecht High School. I have a good friend that went there, and that stands in for James Buchanan High School in Welcome Back Cotter, where it's supposed to be set. And that's where Gabe Kaplan went, Mr. Cotter, and the show was his idea. <laughs> it was a real, also, plot point in many of those shows. That's one thing that probably was similar. You know, Washington thinks he's going to leave school, and he's going to go play, and every show had one like that, you know, and there was the wise character, D, the sister, the little sister sure. in uh, What's Happening. What's Happening, yeah. D, the little sister in What's Happening, is the one who kind of speaks to this one player and says, what are you going to do if you're going for a jump shot against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? He comes down on your knee and your knee's broken. What are you going to do? You know, there was always those kind of things where basketball is really a metaphor for life, mm -hmm. and you can do that a little bit through TV. Mm -hmm. Growing up myself, almost everybody you know when you're in a Greek-American family is Greek. Sundays, name days, Boy Scouts, something right. is always happening, Sunday school. Mm -hmm. But you meet somebody who doesn't have that shared experience as a young person, and it expands your horizons, I guess you'd say. Those things stick with you so much. You'll meet somebody years later, maybe, and they'll say, I have, well, I have a Greek friend. You do this. They'll remember a word. <laughs> so exotic to you, even though it's just you living your it's life. Your, it's your first exposure to most of those things that really stands out because you're impressionable. You're under 14 in most cases. And you might live in a diverse part of Jersey. A lot of those kids did a diverse part of Long Island, a diverse part of Queens. You might live in the suburbs of Boston because your parents have moved from Roxbury. But it's still something different the first time. Because there was no MTV, because there was no VH1, <laughs> because there was no Facebook to friend other kids your age, to meet kids in the flesh and have to socially interact with them, whether it was on summer jobs or because you had a crush on them or at a dance or at the beach or on the basketball courts or riding bikes and have to confront them physically in the flesh, not digitally. There were bonds that were formed that were so strong because you'd look forward the other nine months to coming back and seeing that kid again. They've grown two or three inches there cuter. They've got a summer job. Voice changes. The voice changes. <laughs> they've got accepted to some college. They're a better basketball player. Maybe they've left you behind in basketball terms. And that's, if you don't know anything about their ethnic group, or if you don't know anything about the part of their country that they're from, when there were no music videos and things like that, as you said, there was no universal media other than Soul Train and American Bandstand. So when you heard slang and it was specific to Newark, that stood out because you were still an impressionable age. Or if you saw them wearing something, if they were watching the games on the sidelines and the bleachers at night, you weren't wearing that in your city. Or if they were singing something or humming something musically, those things were very socially significant because they were exposure at a very young age. And I think the reason a lot of people that played down there when they got older went into fields like education or coaching is because they saw how influential something can be when a young person is exposed to it at an age when they can still process it and do something about it. Whereas when you're exposed to something in boot camp or in a college dorm, by that time you're 18 and your personality is not as fluid 
And though you're meeting people from all around the country, when you do go to boot camp or when you do go away for your first year of college, you really don't have that much wiggle room in your personality to incorporate new aspects that might imprint themselves on yourself forever like they do when you're 10 or 11. The cake's kind of almost ready to come out of the oven by that point. You're who you're kind of who you are, you know. You're you know you're not ready to be still uh mixed around in there if you forget an ingredient or something you can take it out after the first 10 minutes and change it, maybe pour it into a different pan, but not so by the time you go to college, you kind of a lot of it's formed, right? Yeah, and a lot of by the time you go to college or into the work world at 18, 19, 20 or into the military you consider yourself a product of New Britain, Connecticut, or certain part of Long Island or Queens or DC, such that you're actually boasting to the other kids in the dorm or the other kids in the barracks about the girls look better where I'm from than you, or our parties are better, our music, or we have better cars, or you know, our schoolboy basketball is stronger than your brand of schoolboy basketball. You're not as interested in sort of, uh, yeah, what do you got? Because by that time, you're out in the world with some responsibility, whether it's uh, the job, the military, or the college. And you do have shared goals, but it's not a shared goal like all being on the same basketball team together when there's no bills, <laughs> there's no grades. The parents don't watch you unless you get bigger and you play at night like Johnny and Ronnie and Rory did. So it was very independent. You kind of ride down on your bike, get signed up, and your parents knew where you were three times a day, and they never even asked. They're like, oh, he's at the courts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that bike was an important thing, too. I was going to ask you what kind of bike you had, because that instinctively was the big question, right? Not that we had that many kinds, but the Schwinn Stingray was uh, mine back in that time. So, yeah, that's what, yeah. I had. that's what I had. I had one of those Sears purple Stingray uh, spider bikes with the banana yep. saddle. And that was a big thing. I mean, yep. what kind of bikes did the other kids have? And yeah. I think in education, sometimes we underestimate how much molding and role modeling and watching entertainers and athletes and people in prominent positions, even in your own community and even your older brothers and sisters and your bigger cousins that you would only see Thanksgiving or summertime. I think people underestimate how malleable we are when we're under 15 or 16. And I say that because I think people would do a better job introducing career and career day and class trips to real jobs and things like internships more in the United States if they really knew that you can't afford to really experiment with those kind of things when you're paying your own rent. Like if you go to nursing school or school to be a mechanic or a computer science school or something like that, trade school, barbering, and you're 19 or 20, you're 21, you're out, out of your parents' house and you don't like it. Well, by then you have rent mm -hmm. <laughs> and you might have a car note and you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you might even have a kid if you're 22 or 23. And you're not as flexible to shift out of that and say, oh, well, barbering isn't what I thought it was going to be. Now I'm going to go to a four year school. Yeah, well, somebody's got to pay for that. So I just think when I see what people tell me about, oh, you know, Ronnie Brown, when he was a morning instructor, was a such an influence on me. And that's why I went into coaching or teaching or Coach Schofield. Some of the lessons that he taught me had nothing to do with basketball. And I didn't live on the vineyard, so I didn't have him all year round. You hear people say that and people are telling you that in their 40s and 50s. And it's like, wow, I mean, a little trivial thing like a recreational basketball league can have uh, life lessons that stay with people, people that are very impressive to me, not because of what they've gone on to do for a living, but just the way their own kids have been raised. And they're always sharing these stories about the courts and boring their own kids to death. <laughs> My guest is Bijan C. Bain, and his book is Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. You can find him sharing actively on Twitter under the handle Bijan C. Bain. That's B-I-J-A-N. The letter C B A Y N E. He also has a WordPress blog that we'll link to at historyauthor.com so you can check out his thoughts on many things. I really like seeing your little icon picture in there on Twitter. I always know it's going to be something good. So I really do encourage people to follow you on there and get to know you a little bit. Jack Shea at My Times writes of Martha's Vineyard Basketball, quote, Mr. Bain declares an unconditional love for the game in his preface to Martha's Vineyard Basketball. 
and proves it with voluminous amounts of research and original interviews with former players, coaches, and celebrities who have graced the courts, unquote. Bijan, I mentioned your Twitter handle, and it reminded me of something you said about your book, namely that the courts played that role social media plays. I know when I drive around in the warm months, I see those basketball courts. I see places that used to be basketball courts. When I was a kid, you know, you'd, we'd come out for summer, maybe from college you'd play, or when you were younger and you, as you said, you ride your bike, that was the big deal, get a little bit of freedom from your parents. Even courts that I would just sit and watch when I was stuck in traffic on the FDR drive, sometimes you just sit there and sure. you see some kids playing, you know? Mm-hmm. Today, they're empty or they're transformed into parking lots, and sometimes they've just fallen into disrepair. The hoops are gone, never mind nets. You describe a similar drain away from the courts, how they've changed. You say 1995 was a good year. Then you compare that to the 70s. So since we're about 20 years later from that now, so 40 years from when you were playing there, what's the experience like compared to 95 and then again to when you were lacing up your sneakers as a young person? That's a very, very good question. It's a very good observation that you made about the activity. And and obviously everyone can relate to it that's a child of, let's say, the baby boom because you can see the difference in participation levels. Obviously there's some things like children have more electronic devices and things like that to occupy their time, even when they're off from school. That's the obvious one that everybody always throws out. Socially, I think another thing that's a little bit more particular to Martha's Vineyard that might not be as big a difference when it comes to the different levels of participation that you don't see at city and suburban courts now that you saw in, I would say, peak early 70s to mid 80s. The baby boom had ended so you don't have as many children just in terms of sheer volume uh, doing things like that. And a lot of people that play something like a basketball now or a baseball, things like that, they don't play as much pickup, especially if they don't live in neighborhoods where you just go out and do stuff with kids every summer day because the houses are further apart if you live in the suburbs. They do more things under parental supervision like travel soccer, travel volleyball, travel swimming, select basketball, select softball, organized tournaments. And it's got a lot of adult down activity level and driving rather than biking involved. And I think on the vineyard, this is a factor that's, I think, specific to Martha's Vineyard. People don't tend to stay on the vineyard the whole summer with their kids because now that people after the 90s, you talked about the participation level in the 90s, I don't think the drop off in the 90s was because of digital toys and Game Boy and Xbox. That was coming. It was there. But I think it was just there were less kids because it wasn't the baby boom. And people don't stay there as long. So from 75 to 95 and then 95 to 2015 and now 2017, our parents stayed the whole summer. My father was in education. Some people that lived in Massachusetts, they didn't live that far away from the island. So they'd catch a ferry over early in the summer. The kids would be out of school all summer. Maybe the dad still worked all summer. Sometimes the mother did, sometimes the mother didn't, but the kids would stay with their grandmother because sometimes it was their grandmother that had purchased the house or their grandmother and grandfather. So they'd be there July and August. Now people tend to have two weeks off and not everybody works in education. Not all the people live in Southeastern Massachusetts anymore. Some people that grew up with me playing on the courts have gone and moved to the Atlantas, to the Milwaukee's, to the Chicago's, to Indianapolis. And they don't live as close to just drive over and leave their kids and come over every weekend and see their children. And that accounts for the drop in participation as well. So there's there's been a few things. Kids having more outlets for entertainment. Parents don't tend to stay on the vineyard all summer, although some Massachusetts families do. But then you have families where you marry somebody that's not from Massachusetts and they have their summer vacation places, which might be Eastern Shore, Maryland. I'm just using that as an example that are in their father's and mother's tradition. So you spend some time there and some time on the vineyard, but not the entire summer on the vineyard. So you don't get that long pickup basketball and summer league uninterrupted participation because people tend to take a week off or two weeks off, and then they have to go back to work. So they keep their kids close because the kids are often involved in music, 
science camp, space camp, select softball, select baseball. And those kind of things keep children closer to home. You mentioned the slang there and the courts having this language that is also a mix here of people from all over. You include a glossary in Martha's Vineyard Basketball. And I wondered if any of those slang words ever kind of made the jump where kids would take them home and sort of do this reverse pollination. Did any of those spread from there where maybe a kid at New Utrecht was introducing it when he came home from Martha's Vineyard and other people picked up on it? Or was it just a language that was sort of spoken there and discarded after each summer? Well, I think what happened was the guys that would be about my age played as little kids from about 70 to 72 or 73, if they're one or two years older than me or one or two years younger. And then in high school, if they played out there in what they called the NBA in quotes, the older league at night, by the time they played in that league, they were 17, 18. Some of them played even when they would come down there in college or, or working. They lived in Boston. They'd come all summer and they're 21 and 22. So those kind of people, when they would hear a term that only New Yorkers use, like like in 73 or 74, when a kid wanted the ball, they'd say, yo, but only the kids from New York said that. Well, like about three or four years later, six years later, seven years later, when you see things like MTV raps and you hear all these hip hop songs that have the term yo in them and the program is even called yo MTV raps. Right. Your mind flashes back to I heard people saying that on the court like eight or 10 years ago. But the only kids that use that terminology were from New Yorkers. So I think a lot of Bostonians probably did. Hmm sort of introduce terminology like, oh, snap, or something like that, where if a kid missed a shot or, or, or there's a turnover or something like that, a lot of kids from the city would say, oh, snap. And like, then when you start to see like things that captured the hip hop culture, like in the early 80s, movies and things like that, movies like Juice, you see, oh, that's like known nationally now because of videos and because of movies and because kids are watching the same TV shows and things like that or listening to the same records. So I think there was some cross-pollination because in the stands, when, when people didn't play in the league, they still used the basketball courts as sort of a form of social media. So kids that didn't play and only were watching their siblings or watching people that they had crushes on or that they met or had befriended, they would come down to the courts for the night games. They didn't really come down for the little boys games because nobody wants to watch little boys play basketball. <laughs> it's too sloppy. They'd watch these teenagers and while they were watching the games, they would also talk about what beach is everybody going to tomorrow? Who got accepted to what college? Who likes whom? Who has a crush on whom? Who's sort of summer dating? Who's having like a house party, what passes for a house party a month has been in summer, who's having a house party uh, after the game or tomorrow night. So that was sort of like Facebook, because if you didn't go to the courts, if you were 15, 16, 17 or 18, that night, later that night when the games were over with or the next day, you were like out of the loop. You didn't know what beach everybody was going to. You didn't know who had a summer job where so they could sneak you some donuts or some <laughs> <laughs> record posters or posters of your favorite recording artists or who was having a house party because you missed the courts. So you'd be sort of this person didn't check their email that day. <laughs> what a great way to compare it. Yeah. But you'd also sort of copy, like if you thought that what they were doing was more progressive than what you were doing and you lived in a smaller town or you lived on the vineyard, I could see instances where kids might've said, wow, that's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to get a pair of bell bottoms like that. Or that's an interesting type of top, or those are some interesting sneakers or that's an interesting hairstyle. I'm going to start braiding my hair or wearing my afro a little bit more like that person does because that's like a big city thing that that person is doing. You talked about there your friend saying, you know, his kids are a little bored by this story in their in their youth. They don't they don't know enough, I guess, to you know listen to the important stories. You know, when you get older, a little then you want your parents, your grandparents, to tell you more of those stories of the old days. It really comes across in Martha's Vineyard basketball that people wanted to talk to you, and yet 
as an author, that's a challenge for you. You know, you're touching upon so many different stories and things are moving. I likened it to the basketball. You know, when you throw it, no matter how good you are, you never know exactly where it's going to bounce, right? So you have to corral that as you build the narrative structure of the book and you need to crop some people's stories maybe a little bit. So I wondered how you met that challenge of corralling all of this into a single book. That was probably the biggest challenge because of the chronology, which, as we referenced, really dates back to colonial times, the founding of the island. The fact that you have to give a lot of people in the Midwest, the West Coast, and the Deep South, the Northeast, a geographical sense of this island, and then Cape Cod, and Boston, and the mainland, and then the rest of the world. So you have to sort of layer that out for people that don't have a frame of reference. Then you have that encapsulated time that's sort of concentrated between 1970 and 1985. Not everybody that's reading the book was raised between 1970 and 1985. And then some people, I let them sort of tell their stories at length against better editorial judgment because (laughs) some people saw almost every league of summer from the time they were like 10 until they were grown. And... Some people had concentric circles of friends that's sort of an amalgam or Venn diagram that's a good cross-section of like they knew this kind of kid, this kind of kid, that kind of kid. They knew island kids. They knew city kids. So I'm just going to let them sort of go on and not be as conservative with with my editing uh, with that person because I felt that some people that played on the island but then also had moved to the island from an inner city before they went to the island, could see Martha's Vineyard from from twin perspectives. I also felt that some of the white people that played in the league when they were young boys, but then when they were grown men, lived in places like Miami or went to Syracuse University or the University of Miami in Florida or went to college in Boston and played pickup ball in urban Boston, they could relate to something that they probably knew about when they were younger, but couldn't relate to as much because it hadn't happened to them personally. Two or three people told me when I moved to the city as a young adult, after having been raised and been exposed to diverse cultures on the courts, I was a good player and I played for the Vineyard High School, but nobody knows that. And I'm an average height or not even average height, five, eight, five, nine, but I was a good high school player. But when I went to the city and I wanted to play pickup, Because nobody knew who I was, and because I'm diminutive, and because I'm white, I would go to a court in Boston or Jamaica Plain or the South End or the Bronx or Queens or on my campus at the University of Syracuse, and nobody would pick me up. So eventually, when somebody would need enough people and they would want to take a chance on a stranger, somebody would pick me up, and then they would see how I play, and sometimes they would ask me where I was from or what have you. They usually didn't. But I knew... Although I've never been black, I realize what black people are talking about, about almost every other arena in life other than sport, about having somebody assume that you're not as competent at something because you're the one outsider. So I've had people actually tell me that about the courts. I was pretty liberal with those people because I thought rather than me impose that narrative on the book, I'd rather have somebody tell what it's like to live in Newark or what it's like to live in Washington, D.C., and then move to Martha's Vineyard when your personality is already formed because your parents wanted you to live in a safer environment for kids, or what it's like to be the only white person doing something in a predominantly black environment or going to a college where there were a lot of black kids or black fraternities and sororities. And although you knew about that because you had been around Vineyard teenagers, People can't look at you and tell that you know about that by looking at your face. So that really informed how the book is edited, but it's not really edited. There's a lot of just oral narrative where I just let people discuss things that we don't talk about in this society much. Well, that sense of freedom that you describe in the book, that's something that I definitely got from it. You say, you know, these kids would get there and you would have that freedom and not just the freedom of a bike or to be able to be out of your parents' sight there because they know where you are, but 
you know, you go to a store, you don't have to worry about being followed around. I'm kind of a big uh, swarthy guy. Like if I don't shave, especially after 9-11, and that's a little taste of it. Mm -hmm. This is a freedom that you experience here on the courts. It's not just (laughs) that you're there playing basketball. It's not just you talking about your childhood. This is something that people can really learn and then apply today, an experience that you might not have. That's what a great book does. That's what great history does. Put you in the shoes, in this case, the sneakers of somebody else and say, this place is just completely different for you. So it's not just, this is my summer town and Bijan wanted to tell the story of it and talk to a bunch of old friends. We can get a little bit of that experience. That's why I talked about myself a little more than I usually would like to, because I'm getting drawn into it. And I think readers will get drawn into it too. They'll meet people. The one person you mentioned a couple of times, Coach Jay Schofield. Talk about the role that he plays in creating this really special place. Well, I really uh, appreciate your grasp of some of the story angles and the sociology of the book. Everyone can appreciate things from some entry point. When you look at like the fact that Jay Schofield and Mr. Downs and Mr. McCarthy founded this league in 1970, and then a couple summers in, they let junior high school girls play in the junior high school level boys league. I mean, this is before these lawsuits about Little League. This is when Title IX was in its infancy. This is kind of advanced for that time. This is like 1974, 1975, 1976. I think it helped the Vineyard High School girls basketball program because those girls played with and against boys in the summertime. So they had done that by the time they got into ninth and 10th and 11th grade. I'm sure that the summer leagues also helped the boys on the Vineyard also because they had played against all these city kids all summer. It's not that Mr. Schofield didn't have a method to this madness in terms of organizing the league. It wasn't just about an outlet and recreation and getting kids off the summer hangout spots and and from idle time. There was also, if my 11 and 12 and 13 year olds who are someday gonna be 16, 17, 18, are playing basketball against kids from Roxbury and Providence and Baltimore and DC, it's not gonna hurt them. So there was the vision that he had there. And I also feel like, you know, you're sharing these stories about an entry point or feeling like an outsider. The people who talk about the basketball courts, although they don't all say it in one way, they all say it in their very personalized or individualized ways. It strikes me that a lot of kids from the 70s and 80s, this was the first place where they experienced tolerance universal tolerance based on athletic merit or even if you weren't one of the best athletes on your little team you were working hard and you were unselfish and i say that because of the type of people that a lot of them have become as adults the type of families that a lot of them are in as parents and as husbands and wives and also because everybody has told me that they can see the other person's point of view. Like I learned more about what it is to live on the island all year round because I would ask kids what it was like. The kids who moved from the city to the island saw a whole new way of living in a high school with 400 people where if they had stayed in the cities where they their parents had moved them from like Newark and DC, they probably would have had 2,000 or 2,500 kids in your high school, which is not as intimate in terms of knowing all the kids and things like that. The well-to-do kids got to know not to be judgmental about working class kids. Uh, The white kids obviously didn't judge the Cape Verde and then the black kids and the adults like uh, Mr. Schofield got to work with people who were not just by the luck of the draw living on Martha's Vineyard. And although he had very good basketball teams for varying reasons in the 1970s and 80s, the island basketball teams were just luck of the draw potluck who just happened to be in high school all those years while he was coaching but in the summer he got to see his kids playing against some of the arguably best talent up and down the eastern seaboard because those kids just happened to have a summer vacation tie there and the boston kids who played there in the mid-70s in the summer were playing during the peak of the forced school busing that Boston underwent between the fall of 74 through the late 70s. So they may have experienced something that was very eye-opening of how silly and superficial the whole 
fussing dynamic was in terms of all the violence and all the parental rancor that that stirred up because they took these kids from places like Boston, like Roxbury and Dorchester and Mattapan, sort of the central part of Boston. And to balance the demographic of the schools, they bust a lot of those kids beginning in 1974 and they started in high school, which is always a mistake because we just talked about how socially formed your personality is by the time you're a teenager. They started this busing and they bust them to these working class, almost entirely Irish schools in Hyde Park and Charlestown and South Boston to balance the demographic of the schools, which means the city kids, well, they're all city kids, but the kids from Roxbury and Mattapan, Jamaica Plain and Dorchester had to get up at like six o'clock in the morning in the, in the fall of 1974 in the dark and go to school with kids that they didn't know. They'd never been in chess clubs, math clubs, science class, ball teams, dances, anything with these kids go all the way across town. And those kids didn't know them, nor did their parents know their parents. But in the summer, some of those same kids from those high schools would come down to the courts and ethnicity wasn't an issue at all. So they got to see how farcical that notion that some just because somebody is different, that you can't get along with them is. And they already knew that that wasn't the case because they had played on teams, which is a cooperative venture with kids like that from all over, from the island, from not from the island, working class, college educated parents, non-college educated parents, since they were 10 or 11. So by the time forced busing came along, they were like, even more so than maybe some of the adults who were just trying to look out for the safety of their children or the traditions of their neighborhoods or the government forcing them to do something or uh, going to school with strangers or having news cameras in front of your school every day. The kids were looking at it like, this is a joke. I grew up with Greek Americans and Portuguese Americans, Italian Americans, poor kid, well not poor, but working class blue collar kids and these suburban kids that are going to go off to these Ivy League colleges. And we all play basketball together. We all eat ice cream together. We all go to the beach together. We all go to the carousel together. We ride bikes together. And ethnicity is like not even on anybody's mind. I think everybody that you say I interviewed in the book sees that court probably the same way people that founded the vineyard saw the campgrounds is this place that was not so much of a Rorschach test like much of our culture is, a Rorschach test of what preconceived notions and what biases you have. It was more like, okay, now when we go inside this fence and we turn on this starter's clock and we activate this scoreboard and we open the scorebook, we're leaving everything else that's going on culturally in America behind. We're not really leaving it behind because, as you said, we're picking up slang. We're picking up fashion cues. We're picking up crushes and things like that. But we're not judging people just solely based on who they are and who their mother and father are. I'm going to ask you to come back again because we didn't talk about Elgin Baylor, your other book, your book about the man who changed basketball. So I hope you'll join me again to talk about that. But I want to thank you for sharing these really great memories of a special place. I don't think I've ever been unprofessional before and burst out laughing, but <laughs> which is not to take away from anyone else's book. But this really That's a good sign. <laughs> put me right back on the in the banana seat of that Schwinn Stingray. I shudder to think what that poor metal would do now under me as an adult man, but it really did take me back. I hope many other people will take that journey with you in Martha's Vineyard Basketball. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I do hope to hear from you again. Thank you so much again for having me, Dean. This was a delightful interview. The questions were very insightful. They were thoughtful. Obviously, I'd love to come on again and discuss Baylor, but I think people will find this a really fun read. It's not a scholarly sociological book. It just happens to touch on things that we can all learn from. Well, Bijan C. Bain, I think you wrapped it up so well there. And I found myself thinking about, I don't know, a quarter of the way through, why can't the whole world be like the courts? It's really that kind of place. And it makes us, I think, all want to, you know, bring a little bit of that happiness and that smile into the world with us. Yeah, the anecdotes are funny. I mean, I, I wasn't there to witness all those things, <laughs> but there's nothing like an American teenager, the awkwardness, trying to find yourself, and then the sort of the microcosm of sport. I bet a lot of people will read stuff and say something like that happened to me when I was 14 or 15. <laughs> I hope people will pick it up and I'm sure that they'll enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much again, Dean.
Again, the book is Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. You go to historyauthor.com, click through our Amazon banner, and amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost in your shopping cart. Once again, my thanks to Bijan C. Bain for joining me and for sharing with us the history of the hardwoods and asphalt on the island off Cape Cod. And as we discussed, it's 2017, so our version of The Courts is on social media. Follow Bijan on Twitter at the handle Bijan C. Bain. That's B-I-J-A-N, the letter C, B-A-Y-N-E. Visit him at his blog for all of his musings. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this episode of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're downloading us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.